Welcome to Energy Central Power Perspectives Podcast, the show where we connect with utility leaders to discuss the future of the energy industry and the inspiring people making it possible. I'm Jason Price of West Monroe, Community Ambassador with Energy Central and host of the podcast and based in New York City. Joining me from Orlando, Florida is Matt Chester, Energy Central's Community Manager and producer of this podcast, Power Perspectives. Matt, we finally turned the calendar on 2020, a year like no other that saw challenge after unprecedented challenge thrown at the utility sector. Despite the pandemic, despite the havoc wreaked from hurricanes and wildfires and other natural disasters, and amid much political tension, the utility industry was, as always, tasked with continuing to deliver safe, affordable, reliable, and increasingly clean electricity without interruption. Even if 2020 had been a relatively normal year, the rapidly changing landscape in the utilities sector requires steady leadership and adaptation of innovative solutions to keep pace with the transformations taking place across the industry. The focus on keeping power bills affordable for customers is, of course, nothing new. And even as new and innovative technologies get added to the grid and forward-looking clean technologies take up a larger chunk of the energy mix, none of that can come in a way that will create greater undue energy burden on a utility's customer base. The Department of Energy defines energy burden as the percentage of gross household income spent on energy costs. And for lower-income households, the energy burden tends to be greater. The DOE reports that low-income homes have an average energy burden of nearly 9% compared with just 3% for the rest of the country, while particularly high burdens of up to 30% are recorded in extreme cases. And these undue disparities have only been heightened amid the corona-related recession. Added to the fact that ways to reduce energy use, such as efficient appliances or rooftop solar, tend to be capital intensive and out of reach for low and medium income households, the high entry cost creates a situation that cannot be ignored. The energy burden is a top priority for our guest today, Jacob Williams, the general manager and CEO of Florida Municipal Power Agency. Jacob and his team at FMPA can boast success in maintaining low power costs while simultaneously maintaining reliable supply amid a concerted focus on ramping up availability of clean energy, particularly via utility-scale solar power. Successes in this regard and lessons learned are made to be shared. So we're excited to dig into how they've been able to accomplish this with Jacob. And Matt, he's achieved this all in your home state of Florida. What do you think of that? Well, they do call it the Sunshine State, so I suppose it's only appropriate And given how long I know we have to keep the AC on during the year, affordability is a high priority. So I'm eager to hear more about these circumstances from Jacob. Indeed. But before we dig into the discussion with our esteemed guests, we'd like to recognize the sponsors of this podcast who made today's episode possible. To West Monroe. West Monroe works with the nation's largest investor-owned utilities and their telecommunications, grid modernization, and digital and workforce transformations. From defending a rate case to preparing a business case, West Monroe utilizes a multidisciplinary team that blends utility, operations, and technology expertise covering topics including aging infrastructure, electric vehicles, AMI, MDM, and ADMS deployment, and industry disruptors like DER and cybersecurity. To ESRI, an international supplier of geographic information, 
GIS software, web GIS, and geodatabase management applications. And to Guidehouse, formerly Navigant Research, a premier market research and advisory firm covering the global energy transformation. As I mentioned, today we're going to be joined in the podcast booth by Jacob Williams, the CEO and General Manager of Florida Municipal Power Agency. Jacob has held this position since September 2016, and he took up that mantle after an esteemed three decades of experience across the electric utility industry, including at both public power and investor-owned utilities. Among the most notable successes Jacob has achieved at FMPA has been the continued lowering of costs to customers, achieved in a way that doesn't sacrifice the utility, embracing new and important technologies on the grid, while also keeping clean energy integration as a top priority. Balancing all of these competing goals is no easy task, but with a professional career that spanned energy marketing, trading, integrated resource planning, generation planning, and more, it's no wonder that FMPA saw him as the right man for the job. As part of the Energy Central community, Jacob recently shared some insights that he's gained in the journey of ensuring FMPA's members who serve nearly 2.6 million customers, keep access to low-cost, reliable, and clean power, and his agency's recent efforts to really ramp up affordable solar power in the Sunshine State. I'm so eager to learn more about how FMPA is making the dream of affordable power come true. So let's not delay any further and bring him in. Jacob, welcome to today's Energy Central Power Perspective episode. Jason and Matt, thanks for uh, uh, having us, and we're, we're delighted to be able to serve our 31 member cities that are a part of FMPA that serve 2.6 million Floridians, and we, we've worked very hard in lowering our cost to our members and things that we'll get into while not sacrificing reliability and, and also moving to a cleaner portfolio in the process. Perfect. So let's just jump into things. For our listeners who may not be familiar with FMPA or the Municipal Power Agency model, can you give us a quick summary of who you are and how you differ from the utility model some people may be familiar with? Sure. FMPA is essentially a group of 31 cities that own FMPA. Think of it as a cooperative of cities, and many of them receive some or all of their power from FMPA. It's a not-for-profit, and any margins created go back to the members to lower their cost of power. In addition, the members work together and we provide an array of services from engineering support, project management, technical training, legal consultation, rate guidance, things of that nature that we can do on a scale basis that help our members out, as well as providing them low cost, reliable, and clean power. So what, what makes it interesting is that every month I have a board meeting. There are 31 board members there. They're from the cities. They vote what to do. We are very much driven by the owners, the cities. The cities provide electricity to all their communities. Essentially, they are representing their customers and all the decisions that get made at FMPA. Thank you for that. So you stressed in your article that FMPA is constantly working hard to reduce its power costs. Would you tag that as priority number one in your role? And when looking at all the simultaneous targets you're looking at to reach when it comes to affordability versus resilience versus clean energy and more, can you comment on how the pandemic may have shifted around those priorities, if at all? Yeah, clearly, assuming that, that we're providing reliable generation to our communities, cost is number one. If you're high cost, you're not providing value here in Florida. 
as everyone knows, Floridians use about 25% more electricity than average Americans. They're double what those in California and New York use for electricity. So the price of electricity is very important to our members. So that that's number one. And this past year, we were proud through the pandemic that we were able to deliver the lowest cost to our member cities in 16 years. So it, it costs certainly stayed priority all through this and even more so because in the middle of the pandemic, 23 of our cities lowered their rates by a total of $62 million to their customers for anywhere from one to six months, right in the heart of the COVID in, in April, May, June, as a way of recognizing that their customers were needing price breaks as much as they could. So they were grateful to be able to take $62 million off their bills over a period of time to, to help our customers out. We continue during this time, though, to protect the power plant operators and the employees are, you know, we, we, we look to protect all of our team members, but in particular during COVID, the, the key thing early on was to make sure that the group of, call it eight people at each of our facilities who knows how to run the power plants, that they stayed healthy and available to operate the plants and were successful in doing that. The final thing is through all this, we were able to grow our clean portfolio because we added 150 megawatts of uh, two large-scale solar projects, came online uh, on time in June. So in the heart of the pandemic, we were able to provide even cleaner power to our member cities. Can you talk a bit more about how FMPA balances the goals of affordability, reliability, and sustainability in its power supply, given that these can sometimes be in direct competition with each other? I mean, customers demand the lights stay on and they're pushing for more renewable energy but they don't necessarily want to pay more. So how do you address these concerns with customers? Well, early when I when got here in, in 2016 and early 2017, there was a big member survey of 300 to 600 customers, and I think it was 11 communities, member cities, and asked them those kinds of questions. How would they like to balance it out? And two key questions came out of it. Number one was how many wanted cleaner power? And the answer was 70%. The second key question though was how many were willing to pay more for cleaner power? And that was roughly 10% to pay anything significant more for, for that. And it of course varied from city to city. We have some cities that have average incomes as low as below 30,000 per family unit. We have some cities that, that were in the 50 to 70,000 but the majority of our cities are in the lower side, lower income, large number of retirees. So you start to get a sense for what the socioeconomic of your cities are, and the cities then would make decisions accordingly. So one of the balances that we struck early on was the cities as a whole said they, they want to proceed with some solar power, but they want to do so in a way that does not raise the costs meaningfully to their customers, and they would do it for a small amount because they knew a small amount of, of customers were actually interested in paying more for solar. And that's exactly what happened. So some of the cities signed up for solar, other cities chose not to because their demographics, frankly, didn't lead them to do that. And I think that was the wise decision by them. That was the first round of solar that just came on. Since then, we've had a second round of solar projects that are under development that are at a lower cost. And so more cities are, are jumping in and there. But again, they're laser focused on low cost. They just did not want to do anything that would raise the cost of power to their cities and, and if, if tried to manage that accordingly. 
Obviously, they need to improve reliability. The biggest thing we can help them with their reliability is not our generation to their, their cities, but it's really around their distribution system. And we spend a lot of time trying to help them improve, you know, whether it be better tree trimming, whether it be better pole maintenance, whether it be better fuse coordination, operating practices, all kinds of things, uh, better technology on the system. So we're helping them in that, that line. And some cities have more capital budget and more budget to spend on that than others. And we have to take each one where they're at and, and overall move them forward as best we can. Jacob, I'm interested, uh, you mentioned the customer survey you did and kind of the, the varying results that you saw potentially by communities' income levels. But were there other characteristics of customers that impacted what they were looking for, whether it was solar or other changes, you know, something like residential versus industrial customers or you know, somewhat different geographies within the, the region or other factors like that? Well, obviously, Matthew, you know, here in Florida, there isn't um, what I would call a lot of industry in Florida. There are, are big storage facilities, but most of it's either commercial or residential. Most of our member cities, there, there are a few of them that have some major retailers that have national footprints, but some of our member cities have relatively limited amount of that. And so who are the corporate buyers who are pushing for solar? And in those cases, our members are trying to work with them to provide you know, 100% solar to those facilities via large-scale solar, which we'll talk about. But many of them were basically um, very much residential-driven, uh, with the exception of maybe their own city facilities. So in the case of one of our communities, they chose to have 100% of their city facilities now powered by solar, uh, effectively the same amount of kilowatt hours powered by solar that is bought through the electric utility and delivered to their, their accounts. Geography a little different. You know, in Key West, you know, you could do solar down at Key West. Unfortunately, it's a million dollars an acre for property down there. So no one is going to be putting any meaningful solar down in Key West. And so they were very naturally saying, we'd be happy to get involved in a large scale, low cost utility scale project in the middle of central Florida, ship the power down there, let them own a piece of that and bring it down there because putting solar panels in Key West just is not a, a wise use of, of land down there. Let's dig into the solar topic a bit more. So FMPA and 16 other Florida municipal utilities have created what's called the Florida Municipal Solar Project. Can you tell us about this initiative and how that collective action is perhaps able to reach greater accomplishments than the sum of its pieces? Sure. The uh, Municipal Solar Power Project ended up being done in two phases. The initial phase was 225 megawatts of projects that was committed to 75 megawatts apiece. The reason 75 megawatts apiece is because in Florida, there's a siting rule that basically everything 74.5 and below has a much easier siting than larger. So in Florida, you're going to see 75 megawatt plants all over the place or, or sites all over the place. But we had three of them contracted for Two of them came online, uh, I think we contracted for them in late 17, early 18, and then they came online in June of 2020, two of the three sites. The third site got delayed to 2023. After we started the first set of sites forward, then another two sites was selected. And so now we're gonna have another 150 coming online in 2023 along with that third site. So all in all, that takes us up 375 megawatts of solar that's coming into being as a result of the Florida Municipal Solar Project. How that was accomplished is no single utility could do this on their own. 
the utility scale projects are a third to fifth the cost of rooftop solar and even local solar projects. You need a square mile essentially for every site. And so when these communities looked at what's the best value for my property in my city limits, was it to take a square mile worth of land and turn it into a solar field? Or was it to actually work together with all the other 15 or 16 cities and have places out in literally the middle of nowhere and then bring the power in from those sites? And that is how we negotiated together for those projects. And, and we led all those negotiations and very streamlined process to make that happen. And that way it preserves the value of the land in, the, in and around the city areas. That is, we all know in Florida, there's so many people moving to Florida that all of our communities are seeing growth in new people showing up and developments are around the edges. And many of our communities don't wanna give that land up for a solar facility. She doesn't have nearly the taxing impact, the economic impact that, that housing would have in that area. So you're coming from the unique position of a municipal power agency. So you may not have the resources or freedom to pursue the same type of large scale investment projects that your peers and investor owned utilities can. Whether the goal is for reducing costs, increasing renewables or providing other benefits to customers. So do you think this hampers your efforts to truly dive into clean energy and utility scale solar in any other way? Or since you are smaller scale, do you find yourself uh, having opportunities to try out new things that the bigger players perhaps cannot? Yeah, it's an interesting question. An individual municipal, many of them would struggle in doing projects like this. They don't have the scale. They may have limited resources financially, limited analytical people skills to do that. Through the Joint Action Agency, through the Municipal Power Agency, 31 cities or some subset of them can band together and those resources can be brought to place. You think about it, the Florida municipals provide 15% of all the electricity in the state of Florida. Like given the size, that's quite a scope that you can work with. So the other piece of it is the, the renewable projects, as we said, they're 75 megawatts in size, each, each site. That's a lot different than doing a, a three to 600 megawatt state-of-the-art combined cycle plant. And so it works in the scale that we're, we're talking about. And then finally, each member city can then select how much they want of a piece of a project. So someone says, hey, I want three megawatts. Someone says, I want 30. Someone says, I want five. Someone says, I want none. You know, that's all allowable and, and they can work together and as long as we add it all up to get a, a project in place. And so far, we haven't had a problem. We started assuming we'd do one 75 megawatt project and we had enough interest for three in round one. And we went back out for another 75 and we ended up with two sites, 150. So our, our, our team that was working with our members headed up by Susan Schumann, I mean, it was surprised, kept coming back more and more and more interest in, in all kinds of things that was going on you know, that certain cities wanted more and more. And so we could meet their needs while other cities said cost is most important. We don't want any. So truly, I think we have a little bit of flexibility. You know, if you're under utility rate structure to an IOU or that, it's a common rate to everybody. So you're paying for your share of that cost of a project, whether or not you want it or not. So we probably have a little more flexibility in that respect. Interesting. And bring it back to affordability and benefit the customers. What impacts would ratepayers notice with this effort? 
Well, so for the cities that are taking some power off this, it's a very small impact. I mean, well under 1% increase in their bill from their participation in it. For other cities, there's no impact. And so that's so far the, the scale. For individual customers in some of our cities who have said, if you as a customer, let's say the city of Kissimmee, they're taking 100% of their electricity for the city facilities from the solar project. Well, they're, they're probably going to pay upwards of 10% more for their electricity, but they've chosen to be 100% renewable, so to speak. And so, you know, you could pay 10% more if you want to go 100% solar. For an average customer who's, who's not wanting to do anything more, it's a very small to no impact. In some cities, there's zero impact. So it's, it, it's allowed entities to decide who should get solar, which cities would want to, and try not to pass along to customers who don't want to pay more for their electricity. That's been a nice feature. All right. Well, now I'm going to ask you to look into a crystal ball. The past 10 years have been quite busy for the advancement of solar, both in terms of technology advancement and installations, making much more inroads across the industry. So by the end of the next decade, Jacob, where do you see solar going? How will it benefit and not be a burden to the ratepayers who need affordable energy? And what role will FMPA play in that affordable solar future? Well, I think before you step forward, you got to ask a question. We started, call it 2015, with no solar in the state of Florida, even though it's quote-unquote the sunshine state, as, as Matthew noted. Our solar is extremely different than the solar uh, profile of the West. We have 20-25% less solar energy availability per day than does Arizona because for those who've come to Florida, it's great in, in February and, and March, sunny days most of the time, but throughout the summer, we have uh, cloud cover coming in every afternoon and thunderstorms all over the place. So our, our solar is not only spotty day to day, it's spotty in a 15 minute cycles. And so we're going to grow solar in the state. We're gonna go from zero in the state to probably 7,000 megawatts in 2025, maybe 10,000 to 12,000 megawatts overall in the state by 2030, you know, just rough numbers. That is going to be a huge impact on the system and potential of massive swings of a single resource of power given the weather patterns every day. So we're going to grow solar. There's no doubt about that. But it is going to create a major set of operational concerns that are going to have to be managed and managed well. And it will either lead to a lot more gas generation being available at a heartbeat notice to, to run, and a lot of it spinning and sitting on the sideline, or if cost-effective batteries becomes a, a key player. Unfortunately, right now, the battery technology's cost and effectiveness are not nearly what it needs to be to be at a large-scale power installation to run a whole state the lithium-ion, we're going to need to jump from lithium-ion to a better technology for both cost and performance. You know, Lithium-ion is great for cars, great for your phones, not great on a large-scale utility operation where your costs are important. If you want to do a demonstration, a lot of demonstration projects that use it. So we've got a few things to do. One, we're going to grow solar. Tons of utility-scale sites will come online, and then it's a matter of the generation that's out there is going to operate with a lot of wild swings it's not used to, unless, of course, the battery technology gets cost-effective and, and helps meet those needs. So that's a, a challenge in our operators that run the grid here in Florida. We're a peninsula state. We can't rely on the rest of the country for power. 
We can't, like California, where we can pull power from the north or from the south or from the east. It's Florida, and that's essentially it. We've got a small set of connections to Georgia, but really it's Florida, and that's it. So some unique challenges down here as we see the growth over the next 10 years. That's great. Well, this has been a terrific conversation, Jacob, and I want to thank you for sharing your insight with us on today's episode of the podcast. We will stay tuned to see how utility-scale solar market continues to evolve. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jason and Matthew. You can always reach Jacob through the Energy Central platform or directly with FMPA, where he welcomes your questions and comments. Once again, I'm your host, Jason Price. Plug in and stay fully charged in the discussion by hopping into the community at energycentral.com. See you next time at the Energy Central Power Perspectives Podcast. Thank you.